everyone. Good Monday morning to you. Uh, we're starting Midnight in Chernobyl Part 2. I started grading the exams. I'll work on those uh, uh, later today and later tonight and finish those up. Um, please check the announcements this week as we're rolling into our, our final week. Um, we will have uh, video conferences on Wednesday. Your quiz will also be Wednesday. And then the test is Thursday. And then and then we're done with the class. So, so please finish up strong where you have about, uh, I guess, 30% of your grade. Well, maybe, yeah, 30%, 35% of your grade left um, this week. So please finish up strong. We're going to continue on with our discussion of uh, the Chernobyl text. Um, today, we're going to lead up to sort of the of what happened the night of April 26, 1986. Uh, and then on uh, Tuesday, tomorrow, we'll talk in more detail about um, the explosion itself. This is a long book. As you know, we're not going to be able to get through all of it, but hopefully along the way, I can give you some other details that will be um, of use to you as you uh, as you learn more about this topic. We're also going to learn some names today. Again, um, if I introduce a name, I want you to at least be, be somewhat familiar with it. And um, uh, and if you forget or you're, you're not, not sure who this is, there is a name glossary in the beginning of the text that you can consult anytime you wish. Okay, without further ado, let's get started. Alexander Yevchenko and the promise of Chernobyl. So one of the things I want to remind you is that even though Chernobyl has such a, a bad reputation now, um, in the 1970s, late 1970s, once Chernobyl had been built, um, and as they were building it, this was going to be the future of the Soviet Union. This was going to be the thing that, that, that was a game changer for that region. And to work at this particular nuclear facility was, was a really, really big deal. It was going to draw the best and the brightest. Now, that is situated against also this other thing happening, which we talked about, which is this great massive decline in the economic situation in the Soviet Union. So on the one hand, you had these really bright and really talented people, all who wanted to go to Chernobyl and Pripyat and work in this plant. And then on the other hand, you had this sort of declined economic situation where people would show up to work and not do anything, or people would show up to work and not be really trained in, in, in how to operate, you know, uh, a particular function at the plant. So th this was a, this is a kind of something you just have to know and, and, and learn about that these dual things were happening at the same time, that on the one hand, Chernobyl was going to be the future. And on the other hand, it was a representation of the problems that were going on in the Soviet Union as well. Let's talk about Alexander Yuchenko. Alexander Yuchenko was from Moldova. We've talked about Moldova before, and he had long dreamed uh, of working in the nuclear power plant. Remember, we're talking about the Soviet Union. At this time, Moldova was part of the Soviet Union, so it was not its own country. So we are saying here that Yuchenko was from the Moldovan region of the Soviet Union. He was a young leader of the Soviet Komsomol, which was the Young Communist League. Um, one of the things that uh, you should understand about the Soviet system is that really politics started from the from the crib. I mean, it started from the very beginning and you would grow up to be a part of these sort of political outfits from from the very beginning, from being a young boy or a young girl. So imagine something like like Boy Scouts or Girl Scouts within the, the American context. This is essentially what existed in the Komsomol for um, for young people to, to learn about the party and learn about the political situation. So if you were a member of the Komsomol, you were someone that wanted to be a part of the, the you know, the, the comings and goings of the Soviet system. You wanted to be a part of this this thing, uh, the Soviet Union, and, and, and be uh, and be a player in it. 
he went on to work at the best and most prestigious nuclear facilities in the entire Soviet Union. We'll learn more about Alexander Yevchenko in the book, but we're just kind of setting, or the book, I should say, is setting this up to kind of tell you the types of people that were going to work there. Next, let's, let's talk about Sasha Kural and Leonid Toptanov. Um, Sasha, in this context, is a masculine name. I know sometimes Sasha is a, is a is feminine in, in the English context. But these were two men who um, were nuclear engineers and studied together in Moscow, Moscow Engineering and Physics Institute. Toptanov uh, was the son of a military leader. He grew up in Estonia. Um, Estonia, also part of the Soviet Union at this time, so it was not its own country. So he was from the Estonian SSR, as it would have been called, Estonian Soviet Socialist Republic. And Toptanov longed to join the cult of the uh, Atomic, <laughs> the Atomshiski, um, which uh, basically meant he wanted to be a part of um, being a part of a nuclear city. Okay, um, he wanted to be a part of the people that worked at the nuclear city. Both grew up into deep political indoctrination, true communism, and both would work at Chernobyl. Let me talk for a second about true communism for just a moment. Despite the fact that there was a lot of concerns about the Soviet system, um, despite the fact that, that people that kind of were in the know knew the problems of the Soviet system, the teaching, uh, as it were, the indoctrination, as it were, is that the Soviet system was still the best system in the world. And, and people like Toptanov and Koral and Yuvchenko really, um, really believed in this system. So, so the idea that you would go and work at this new up and coming facility, that you were a true believer in the Soviet system, a true believer in communism, had to have been a major thrill for them. Okay. So again, the reputation of Chernobyl today is of this disaster in the context of that time, going to work at Chernobyl would have been seen to be a huge, significant honor that attracted the best and the brightest scientists and, and physicists and nuclear engineers from all throughout the Soviet region. But, all right, if we turn to page 53, we're going to learn a bit about how they spent their day. All right. Um, and this leads us into part number three, and maybe we'll take our first break at, at part number three. By the way, have your book handy today. We're going to read a lot from the text, so please have your book handy um, so you know um, uh, uh, where we are in the text. All right, page 53. Like all other new engineers, they had to start at the bottom, doing menial work for which they were overqualified, patrolling the plant with an oil can, feeling machinery for hot bearings, mopping up spills, while they learned the practicalities and layout of the station and its equipment. The layout of Chernobyl is a huge, huge... Um, uh, issue, as we will see. The young specialists learned quickly that it was one thing to understand how the reactor worked in principle and quite another to understand it in reality. When their working shifts ended, they stayed in the station for hours, putting in extra time to trace the pathway of giant steam pipes and cables by hand, finding the location of, a huge, of huge gate valves in the dark, following myriad connections from room to room and floor to floor. So these were people that wanted to uh, get it right. They wanted to be the absolute best at their job that they could be. This is very, very sad because as we'll find out, what happens to Toptanov is that Toptanov is going to die in the explosion. Well, 
Let me take that back. He will die because of the explosion. He will die over time. And Leonid Tuktanov would be one of the individuals who will be blamed for the Chernobyl disaster. So I, I want to make something very clear that, um, as we'll see about the disaster, it, it was an accidental um, uh, failure. Okay, so it wasn't wasn't anything. It wasn't like an act of state terrorism. It wasn't something that was intentionally done. But many of the people working there were people that cared deeply about the Soviet system, about true communism, and about doing the right thing. And Koral and Toptanov are are, are are two examples of this, of people that uh, were obsessed with doing the right things, and yet Toptanov is going to lose his life um, because of the um, explosion and subsequently be blamed for it. All right. Let's talk now about part number three, and then we will um, take our first break and move on to part number four. Design and details. Remember back from last time, from last Thursday, we, we talked about Brukhanov. And Brukhanov is tasked, he's not a nuclear physicist, but he's tasked with building kind of the, the, the whole operation, okay, of Chernobyl. And he tries to quit a couple different times because he, he can't find labor and he can't find quality materials. And inevitably what happens is in the design of Chernobyl, they, they cut some corners. Um, and, and we'll see in the second half how, how bad this really was. But Chernobyl was very much designed with what is known as a utilitarian design, where form follows function. Okay? Form follows function. And utilitarian design is the idea that you, you are designing something not to be aesthetically pleasing, um, but simply to do the very basics of what is asked to do, okay? Um, and, and sometimes this would compromise the ability of a, um, uh, of a building, of a structure to do its job properly, right? Um, and so in, in the Soviet system, you know, there was this what was called the utilitarian aesthetic where nothing could be too bold you know, you use these kind of very gray and often drab colors. When I, when I visit Estonia, you know, every time I go to Estonia, you can, you can really see um, the remnants of, of Soviet architecture there from the Soviet period and kind of what they were going for. And it was a design aesthetic that was very basic in its form, okay? And it was supposed to, I mean, the idea behind this was it was supposed to function to kind of the bare minimum, but at times, you know, this this form, this aesthetic really cut corners and compromised the ability of a, of an industry or an apartment building to, to do its to do its job, as it were. Um, there were major problems with the design, especially access. All right. So if we turn to page 57, I'm going to read to you um, how inaccessible this design was. And, and, and as I read this, just think back to, you know, staying in a hotel. And, you know, every hotel you've ever been in that's designed properly should have, you know, clearly marked exits, should have wide spaces in the event of a fire, um, you know, should have elevators for those that, that aren't uh, able to get downstairs. You know, it, it is designed to think about the functionality as well as the aesthetic. Okay. But think about this, page 57. Very top, very, very top of page 57. The layout could be bewildering, and workers found their bearings inside the plant using alphanumeric coordinates lettered in Russian from A to Ya, 
along one axis and along the other by numbers from 1 to 68. Instead of conventional floors, the levels of the plant were subdivided vertically by mark numbers, showing distance in meters from the ground and, paint, and painted on the walls of hallways and landings in large red figures. Now, reread this a couple times to see if you can figure it out for yourself. But here's an example. Climbing from mark minus 5 in the basement to the station's highest point at mark plus 74.5, the roof of the reactor block, the structure stood more than 20 stories high. So, you know, typically, if you think about a, a building that's 20 stories high, we might have a basement, we might have a, you know, a kind of mid-level that might be marked like a mezzanine level. But really, when we get to like floor 15, that is the 15th story. Like the number 15 coordinates with, you know, the, the level of the building that you're at. You're 14 stories high because you're at the 14th level of that building. That's not the way this worked. The structure is 20 stories high, but you have marks everywhere from minus 5 to plus 74.5. Okay? To reach control room number 4, Toptanov, Stolyarchik, Akimov. Akimov is another name you'll need to, to know about as we go on in the text. He's another individual that will be blamed for Chernobyl that night. And the other men on the night shift had to ascend to mark plus 10, 10 meters above ground level, and then travel almost the entire length of the, the derator corridor, a brisk 10-minute walk from one end of the station to the other. From there, the floor of the Unit 4 Central Reactor Hall was higher still, up several flights of stairs or by elevator from the control room to mark plus 35 or more than 10 stories above ground. Here, accessible through a heavy airtight door that could be sealed shut against radiation, lay the shining steel lid of reactor number four. So in the event of a real emergency, it was a real puzzle to try to figure out um, how to get to where you need to get to. And this design flaw, as it were, will pose tremendous problems the night of the explosion. Let's stop right here and take our break. When we return, we'll talk more about the reactor that was built. Starting with point number four about RBMK reactors. If you could turn in your text to page 6061, I want to speak briefly about an RBMK reactor and how it works. These were types of reactors that had been used in the Soviet Union for quite some time. Um, although, as we will see, uh, some engineers within the Soviet system had, had concerns about them. Um, let's look at the bottom of page 60 and the top of page 61. All right. How does it work? The power of the reactor was regulated by 211 boron carbide-filled control rods, most around 5 meters long, which could be raised or lowered into the reactor core to increase or decrease the rate of the nuclear chain reaction, and thus the level of heat and energy it generated. To help protect the plant and its staff from the radiation seething within, the reactor core, the active zone, was surrounded by a massive annular tank filled with water contained within a steel jacket and surrounded by a giant box packed with sand. All of this was further encased in a concrete vault more than eight stories high and crowned with a diadem of metal boxes filled with a mixture of iron shot and the neutron retarding mineral serpent, serpentinite. Serpentinite, sorry. 
A biological shield, a shallow stainless steel drum, 17 meters across and three meters deep, known as structure E, or more affectionately, Elena, sat on top of the vault like a giant lid. Filled with pebbles and rocks of serpentite and nitrogen gas, Elena weighed 2,000 tons, as much as six fully laden jumbo jets, and was held in place almost entirely by gravity. So as these carbide, uh, boron carbide-filled control rods move in and out, it produces a sort of chain reaction which produces steam. This steam then um, uh, pushes those turbines, and those turbines are producing energy. And that's, that's essentially how it works, all right? Here's the issue. The issue was is that the RBMK reactors were too large. And this was a, a symptom, or the book says a triumph, but a symptom of what was known as Soviet gigantomania. Um, we, we mentioned before that the Soviet Union had been sort of obsessed with kind of this particular utilitarian aesthetic um, and form, and you could notice it, you know, from a mile away, oh, that's, that's a hallmark of the Soviet system. They were also obsessed with making, with making things except, exceptionally large for reasons that didn't make it more functional, okay? So again, I, you know, remembering back to times when I've been in Russia or in the Soviet Union or the former Soviet parts of the former Soviet Union, you know, looking at buildings and saying that that's a really large building, um, but perhaps not terribly functional um, and, you know, always built with subpar materials. I mean, they just did not last very long, long at all. Same thing with the RBMK reactor. They cut corners by dispensing with a containment building around the reactor, a standard practice. All right, so they built this huge, you know, RBMK reactor, and there were there were going to be four of them eventually. The, and the fourth reactor is the one that fails, and then they don't build a containment building in the event that something happened to the reactor. All right, so as it says here, a break in the pressure tube was one of the worst accidents that could occur. All right, why does this matter? Why does the size of it matter in terms of nuclear energy? Again, the caveat that I mentioned last time, I'm not a nuclear scientist. I'm explaining this as best a political scientist can. One of the things that I'm also doing is I'm going to provide you with a YouTube video to show you in detail about what this looks like and how it, you know, eventually blew up, essentially. But one of the things that's most um, important about nuclear reactions is they need to be stable, all right? And because the RBMK reactors were so large, all right, were so large, it created um, space for instability to occur, all right? So the night of April 26th, as we'll find out, they were going to do a test um, of the RBMK reactor. And, and essentially the test was they were going to um, power it down. Uh, and when they powered it down, they were hoping for the emergency backup to kick in, all right? But they powered it down too quickly. When they powered it down too quickly, those reactions in this huge reactor became unstable, which set off a chain reaction of other reactions, which essentially blew the lid off the reactor. All right. Again, this is my non-scientific mind trying to explain to you what happened. So the integrity, the stability of these reactions within the reactor is really, 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 really significant. And if the reactor itself is too big, it leaves too much room, like literal room, and also figurative room in this case, for bad things to occur. Because it's possible, or even probable, that an unstable reaction will set off a chain reaction of other unstable reactions within the reactor itself. 
right? And the YouTube video will explain how that basically works. So what's the problem? Again, a political scientist trying to explain to you the best way he can nuclear physics. The problem with the RBMK reactor is something known as the positive void coefficient, all right, which made the graphite water reactor susceptible to runaway chain reactions, all right? One of the things that we'll see as we go throughout the text is that you need the water there because the water, when it's heated up, produces that steam, which then turns those turbines, all right? But water that overwhelms or gets inside of the reactor is a huge problem because essentially what it does is it creates like this molten lava that then can you know ex explode into the atmosphere um, the colossal size creates a loose relationship between activity which made it very hard to manage all right the emergency protection system did not produce an abrupt stop as needed and so when they tried to power it down that night as we'll see in more detail on tuesday when they tried to power it down that night they could not stop the reactions from occurring, all right? Once they powered it down, they powered it down too quickly. It set off this chain reaction. And once those chain reactions started, it couldn't stop them. Again, major design flaws and poor workmanship also contribute to this. But let's just stop here for just a moment, all right? We go back to last time. This guy named Brukhanov says, look, we don't have the materials we need to design this. They say design it anyway. Okay. Secondly, they design this in a way that produces this very aesthetic form, but it's not necessarily functional. All right. So in the event that something bad would happen, you couldn't get the reactors because you had to go through this kind of labyrinth of hallways. It was like a puzzle piece to get there. All right. Um, thirdly, the materials used were not particularly good materials. All right. You built this reactor and then you didn't have the materials you needed to layer over top of it in the event that something bad happened. And then fourthly, because you're obsessed with being big, with being gigantic, you build a reactor that's so big, it, it, it has a tendency to produce unstable chain reactions. All right. So part of this, the problems are, are economic in nature, part of it are political in nature, and part of it are ideological in nature, right? This whole utilitarian aesthetic, and also the, the size of the reactor itself were kind of ideological decisions that were made. So as we get into who is to blame for Chernobyl, we have to remember that there were problems that existed that predated the night of April 26th. Yes, Toptanov and Brukhanov and Akimov are going to take some blame for this. All right. And a guy named Dyatlov, who we'll talk about on Tuesday, are going to take the blame for this. But the blame itself the blame itself is in the system itself. That's also part of the story that uh, Higginbotham is trying to tell in his text. All right, let's go now to page 68 and 69 and talk a little bit about the Soviet Union at this time. Page 68, first paragraph. When one former nuclear submarine officer first took a seat at the desk in Chernobyl's Unit 1, he was horrified by the colossal size of the reactor and how, an, and how antiquated the instrumentation was. How can you possibly control this hulking piece of bleep, he asked. And what is it doing in civilian use? So, someone with knowledge of how nuclear reactors work said in 1982, What are we doing, folks? Page 69. 
let's start let's start the bottom page 68 and then go to 69. But the staff of Soviet nuclear power plants faced with ever increasing production targets, member five year plans, and constantly malfunctioning or inadequate equipment, and answerable to a bewildering and dysfunctional bureaucracy, had long become accustomed to bending or ignoring the rules in order to get their work done. The updated instructions they received from NICAT were neither explicit nor explained. One of the new directives stipulated that a minimum number of control rods should henceforth be maintained within the core at all times. But NICAT did not emphasize that this limit on the operational activity margin, or ORM, was a crucial safety precaution. Deprived of information about why such rules might be important, the operators went on with their work as usual, ignorant of the potentially catastrophic consequences of breaching them. And let's conclude by talking about Three Mile Island. Three Mile Island, as I think we mentioned Thursday, and if we did not, we'll mention it again later on in the text. Three Mile Island was a nuclear disaster that occurred um, in the United States. Um, it occurred in 1979. All right. And when this occurred, it heightened activity and, and focus on the potential dangers of nuclear power. Now, fortunately, the Three Mile Island disaster, disaster though it was, you know, did not have near the fallout uh, of what would occur with the Chernobyl disaster in terms of loss of life, in terms of danger to the environment. It was a disaster and there was danger there. Um, in fact, I've seen Three Mile Island, if, you, if you've ever driven in Pennsylvania and you're on the Pennsylvania Turnpike, you can look just after you pass uh, Harrisburg. It's kind of on the right hand side. You can see the smokestacks from, from there. Um, disaster that it was, you know, it wasn't near the disaster that Chernobyl was going to be. And at the same time, here's the other part of it, there was warnings, okay? Um, Three Mile Islands had, a, had its own warning. I don't want to get into that whole story today. But, you know, not only did you have the warnings from within the system itself, you had a reference point. You didn't want to be Three Mile Island. You didn't want to have one of your nuclear reactors fail and make international news, which is what happened with Three Mile Island and that all that area that had to be evacuated around, uh, I think it's the Susquehanna River that's there, okay? And yet they ignored it. And this points back to something we have to talk about in the Soviet system related to state secrets and the truth. You simply couldn't be fully honest about how bad any situation was. And this would lead up, this political decision, this ideological decision, would lead up to a scenario in which disaster was to occur. And we're going to blame Toptanov, and we're going to blame Akimov, and we're going to blame Dyatlov. And they deserve some blame, all right? But the system itself was structurally flawed. All right, let's stop here for today. Um, Wednesday, we're going to have our, our video conferences, so, so please sign up for that. Um, Wednesday, we'll have the quiz Thursday, the exam. I'm still grading, uh, the, the last of, uh, exam two. So you should get those back by today and tonight. Um, and then what else, what else, what else? We'll just continue on with the text and I will see you tomorrow. Thanks.